welcome to Career and Ruins, where this week we boldly go where no archaeologist has been before. Hello, welcome to Archaeoduck, where we are going to boldly go where no one has gone before, at least in the YouTube video medium, as far as I can tell. Today we're going to be talking about archaeology and Star Trek. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by two of my really good friends, um, Lawrence Shaw and Derek Pittman, who are also behind the brilliant podcast, Career in Ruins. If you haven't listened to it, you should definitely check it out. Welcome, Lawrence and Derek. Hey! Hi, Chloe. How you doing? Good. It's really good to see you. I am very excited for today. It's very nice to be here, and it's quite alarming to, to know that our faces might be seen rather than just our selfie voices. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid that's, that's the hazards of, uh, of doing the video. You have to... You have to really get yourself set up. I mean, last time when I was on your podcast, I was actually sitting under a duvet um, to make sure I had good sound quality. So it's quite a different medium. Yeah, well, we've got these lovely backgrounds. So, uh, I mean, we've completely lucked out on this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both for, uh, for managing to go and get yourselves onto a starship so that we could film this properly in an appropriate Star Trek style. Um, I'm going to kick things off with a question that I think we should all answer, really, and address. Perhaps quite a basic one, but how and where did you first discover Star Trek and your love of Star Trek? I'll go first. Star Trek for me was all about after school, getting home, do a bit of homework, watch The Simpsons on BBC Two. And then uh, and then that followed on. It was either Star Trek or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one of those two. But um, yeah, it, it, it called out to my geekiness, my de- geeky side. And it was a it was a really nice thing to do post homework how about you Derek mine's incredibly similar I I had two older brothers and they were big Star Trek fans so I kind of grew up with it around me from the original series into into next generation so I yeah it was always around it was always on and I also wanted to be a space explorer an astronaut an astrophysicist anything sciencey when I was a kid so it really it just appealed to me massively I think that's that's very similar to my story actually um I do remember being at home and there being nothing on TV, for example, at the weekends, and we were bored, it was raining outside. And the first one I encountered was the original series, um, which, you know, this is back in the day when we had four channels um, <laughs> yeah. to choose from. And so it's, it's the original series, it's going up against the original Batman, which was just weird. Um, so yeah, I used to watch that. And then um, I started to, they started to put the next generation on, as you say, on those school nights. And it just it just developed from there. As by the time Deep, Deep Space Nine came out, I was totally hooked. Well, am I right in thinking as well? On Sundays, there used to be a bit of a, a trekathon. So one one of the things would be on maybe Channel Four, probably a little bit before <laughs> time to as well. So if you got your Sunday tea time viewing sorted, that was a pretty good uh, pretty good afternoon. Sunday viewing has so much to answer for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's really interesting because we were friends, all of us, we were friends, we were working together on various projects. We've been friends for a good few years now. And I'd say it was two or three years into that, that we realised the three of us all had a really deep love for Star Trek as well as archaeology. Do you think there's a reason for that, that we kind of drawn to both of those things? I think so. And it's it's what was quite interesting is how this, how our discovery of our mutual love emerged via sending each other memes on WhatsApp and they just all descended into a Star Trek theme. It was quite alarming that it, it emerged via via that medium. But I, I think there is, I think there's something that links links the past and the future. And as, as, I, as I said just now, when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was future stuff or historical stuff. I was, I was never in the present. And I think that the love of Star Trek and the love of the past kind of to, to a lot of people go hand in hand is it an imagination thing i mean i i loved the the stories and the concepts and the ideas that that i'd watch in star trek and that's very much what i love about my job right now in archaeology i love breaking down the the concepts the theories the uh, the stories the the possibilities and and discovering maybe i think that's it. i think the word discovery that's really important for me I love them for the same reason. And I also love things like Michael Crichton novels. I love this idea of people being trained to, to be explorers and be active in that process of discovery. And for me, that's what archaeology was. It's interesting for me now because I think that's quite, it's become more problematic in my viewpoint because a lot of that 
idea of discovery was actually bound up in a really colonial mindset, which I didn't get when I was like 18 years old, discovering this stuff for the first time. But now I'm sort of working in university to, to work on decolonizing our curriculum. And it's fundamentally difficult because archaeology as a discipline was kind of completely bound up in, in colonial enterprises from its birth, really. So, and I think it's really interesting to me because I think Star Trek is very similar to that in that it, it has this very kind of this, I'm going to discover the universe, but of course there are people already there. So it, it's very much like a kind of universal picture of that um, sort of, you know, a few hundred years ago, colonialism um, of Europeans. But it's also got this really positive vibe about people of different nations and different cultures coming together and working together. And the original series was coming out in the United States at a time when black people were just fighting for their civil rights. And I think it's really interesting how all those different ideas tangle up together. I think you're absolutely right. There is a very strange combination of po- positivity and and this almost utopia of all living beings striving for the best possible outcome and and equality and whatnot but then and I'm sure we'll come on to this in a bit but the role of archaeology in particular in 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 that series is is very much colonial I think when you when you talk about it but I'm sure we'll touch on that in a bit what's what's really intriguing about that is a huge aspect of both archaeology and star trek that drew all of us to it that aspect of exploration that aspect of discovery is also the bit that now when we both look both at our discipline and look at star trek that is a little bit more uncomfortable that 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 kind of colonial undertones the 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 explorer mentality the thing that um shows like firefly kind of dismiss in in a in a heartbeat compared to to star trek where there is that that kind of dominant entity i guess which is similar to academia and archaeology in a way interesting to think about how it plays out in other science fiction as well because it's definitely there um and it's it's um i think it's there's there's a kind of i think star trek actually does try to grapple with it Star Trek has always been very socially conscious. And although when we look back on the older stuff now, a lot of it seems really kind of iffy, I think they've been trying to grapple with those issues. And again, we're going to talk about some specific episodes as we go forward. But I think that's, I think that's actually kind of the point. Like we as archaeologists, we can't take the colonialism completely out of our discipline. There's never going to be a point at which we say, hey, we've decolonized it now, it's all okay. Um, it's an ongoing process and it's a dialogue, but it's about just just thinking about these things and thinking about how they look from the other perspective, the one that we haven't prioritised. So I'd love to do a Star Trek uh, spin-off or maybe some fan fiction, you know, where we're actually seeing it from the point of view of a different civilization, and these guys come in um, and how it looks there. The Borg. But I think that it's also... What was that, sorry? The Borg. <laughs> the ultimate the good guys. yeah. And the Cardassians and the Borg are really interesting as well because the Cardassians are kind of a metaphor for fascism. And the Borg are very much kind of, this is communism, you know, and it's all kind of very anti-totalitarianism. I don't know what you think about that. Definitely. I could go on a very random tangent on this one, but no, I, I agree. It's, yeah, even just the different civilizations and and the what they represent at the time of them being, the, that, those shows playing out is, is very interesting insight. What about the Prime Directive? <laughs> Refresh me of the Prime. The Prime Directive is not to make contact with any civilization without warp capability is that right it's not to interfere with the internal natural development of an alien civilization without warp capabilities yeah so there's an idea behind this that they will all eventually get there so everyone develops (laughs) into this in the same direction um and interestingly, this comes out of an anthropological... Yeah, it's quite a strong cultural evolutionary argument, isn't it? That exactly, yeah. This idea that we all have the same end point, it's, um, it's, it's both problematic and brilliant, isn't it, in a sense, that if everyone's on the same journey, why not hurry a few people along? It's that, it's that awful mentality of, of the early colonial movements. It's, yeah, if, if they're going to get here anyway, why not just lend a helping hand? And you see, you see that play out really clearly in... Um, Star Trek First Contact and some of the early um, Star Trek Enterprise episodes where it's done more from the perspective of the humans being colonised or being brought up to date by the by the Vulcan. So there, there is an element of Star Trek wrestling with that kind of bringing people onto a common trajectory type affair. 
And it's interesting that that idea itself, it's um, Elman Service who kind of brought this cultural evolution idea to, to archaeology and anthropology, that um, the end point is where we are. So that's where everyone's heading to. Um, but they, they break the prime directive all the time, don't they? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a prime sort of um, suggestion. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it is interesting and it is something that played out in our past, um, even in our own history. And I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned it, but having worked in the Pacific now and again. <laughs> I, I think this is, this is the first I've heard. <laughs> I don't mention it that often. But um, yeah, it's very visible. The, 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 and it's in all the literature, but even visible today, visiting Rapa Nui, the Cook Islands, um, the, the, and travelling through New Zealand on the way through to these sites, the, the impact of these first contacts and how a negative or positive experience can shape that that civilization is 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 fascinating. And uh, as you say, they, they grapple it pretty strongly, but wrestle with it now and again in in, this, in all the series. I think something sometimes Star Trek is at its best when it gives itself a mechanism to escape from that that dialogue um so thinking voyager and ds9 where it brings in a new quadrant that hasn't been affected by this this federation this global this not global this universal influence so there are there are species quadrants communities who have grown up in a different way and that contrast is quite nice when they bring that into kind of meeting with the the more typical federation um ships in either through Voyager or DS9 through the wormhole. I mean, one of the things I always loved about Deep Space Nine, about DS9, was that it, it has this, it's really trying to grapple with these really big, difficult um, themes around a, a really ugly colonization um, by the Cardassians of, of the Bajorans. And then what happens after that? And so you have people who had been, who their whole lives been fighting for freedom, who are now kind of not sure what to do. You have the Cardassians still trying to be involved, still trying to rewrite the history of Bajor. And they, they just they just go directly in and look at all of that stuff. I, I, I think I, even from the early series of DS9, which were, I think, pretty abominable overall. <laughs> the fact that they're bringing those things in made it, made it for me a really interesting, uh, different take for Star Trek. I, I think I'd agree, and I, I we'll get to it in a little bit, I'm sure, but I'm completely biased because it's by far my favourite of the Star Trek series. And I think it's the fact that there is still exploration, there is still that discovery element, but there there's also that static room to grow, room to develop, and room to understand. So rather than just almost in, a, in an X-Files, Buffy kind of monster of the week way, which you get in all the other Star Trek series, you develop the storylines, you develop the characters and, and the different dynamics between them in a way that I don't think you get when you're constantly moving between planet from to planet to planet to planet. I love this monster of the week thing. I've never heard that before. <laughs> I, think I think it's a phrase that comes from X-Files um, where people say, oh, I love the monster of the week ones and not the storyline ones. Um, <laughs> But I'd kind of agree with that in the X Files, to be honest. <laughs> oh yeah, Victor Toombs, Eugene Victor Toombs. Oh, that's another video altogether. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Lawrence? Well, I'm just thinking. I'm just throwing it out there, and I know we've we've gone got we've gone in pretty hard with the sort of the, the projecting Star Trek onto the. Um, anthropology archaeology and our views theoretical potential and the way we've progressed as as a um, discipline and also as humans in in on earth um but i'm i'm keen at some point to review archaeology in star trek so uh, there obviously there are loads of amazing themes throughout all the different series and that that portray some of the some of our histories and some of our bigger questions which we will keep cutting through i'm sure but um I I just love the fact that archaeology is a um, is a thing. I mean, <laughs> there are archaeological <laughs> officers, there are anthropological officers on the ships. Let me just get my notes <laughs> because I can't remember these off the top of my head. Um, but what, what's the main one that I loved loads and loads of that? So there are archaeological labs in um, galaxy class ships, and archaeology and anth anthropological officers. Uh, was a position on um, Starfleet vessels from the 23rd century. So not too long till we'll be out, we can start thinking about how we get up onto some ships as well. <laughs> uh, do you guys have a favourite archaeologist or anthropologist from the, uh, from the, the different series? 
I'm going a bit off script here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to start with the one your your brain goes to first, Captain Picard. He it permeates his character. The past is everywhere in Picard, um, and his sometimes partner, girlfriend is or claims to be an archaeologist, and we'll come back to her in a minute. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's put uh, let's put her to one side. <laughs> so um, I I love Benjamin Cisco for many reasons, but I love the fact that he's kind of he's got this commitment to the authenticity of the past. You know, so he um, I think one of the questions we got on Twitter when we said we were going to do this was about how holodecks and replicators. This is from Rob Collins, my colleague, was about how holodecks and replicators might affect kind of material engagement with the past. But um, Cisco is all about that. He doesn't like using the replicator. He likes to cook his own food. Um, mm. And, you know, he's an experimental archaeologist in one episode, which I'd like to talk about later. So Me too, too. I just Very think much. he's the one who, who has a real kind of, and, and he loves his jazz. He's the one who has a real kind of passion for the past that is, he kind of tries to embody completely. What I love about Cisco's passion for the past is even when he's unconscious and in a coma, his narratives play out in his deep past in Earth's history. And it's it's almost in every aspect of his character, it's it's aspects of dealing with either his past or the deep past, or even the the cultural past of the US. And some of the strongest episodes in Deep Space Nine go back to um it's it's a it's a coma fantasy of Cisco's where he's he's a writer um, in the early 19th century, in the mid 19th century, um, and there's a lot of race tension and issues amongst um, a black writer um, working for this science fiction paper, and he ends up writing the story of Deep Space Nine, and it's that that long link to the past he's got is incredible. No, you're right, Derek. You're both right there. He's good, but for me, it's Chakotay on Discovery. <laughs> I think what you mean is Voyager, mate. Because I mean, he's maybe this harks back a bit to our colonialism, but he he's like an anthropologist on a ship and a whole quadrant that's never been explored before. And whilst he's managing all the other bits as, as a number one and then a commando, he he's also um, he's identifying opportunities to imply, imply or apply even his uh, anthropological knowledge and skills and. One of my hands-down favourite episodes I think we're going to be talking about in a bit. But uh, I mean, Let's keep going around the table, I reckon. Chloe, have you got any other ones that you like? Um, well, no, I wanted to come back to Picard, uh, actually, because I think it's interesting with him. He, he, is, he is very interested in archaeology, but he's a very old... I mean, he's very old school in a lot of ways, Picard, and, and we love him for it. He's a very old school archaeologist, and I think he's almost more of an antiquarian, which are those, those people that kind of... Um, particularly in, in, in the British Isles that kind of foreshadowed archaeology by basically collecting things. Um, and I think the card is he's more interested in objects outside of their context. Um, and so he's, he's very object focused. And I think that's interesting about him. It's a bit different to what we see from some of the other characters. Yeah, Picard's very much the, the culture historian, isn't he? And you've got Cisco, the, the post-processualist engagement, phenomenon. Maybe we should explain um, that term a, for those people a, who are less familiar. Polar opposites, in a sense. With post-processualism, Derek. Uh, just uh, so... so Picard's archaeology is one of constructing cultures and societies from the things they leave behind, the, the characteristic similarities in objects, whereas Cisco's is one of attempting to put yourselves in the shoes of the people in the past to experience things as they would to try and understand it from a, a more culturally contextual perspective and uh, i guess that that's a nice way to come in with processualists i guess um we'll, we'll i'll talk a bit more about processualists and processualism when we get on to the voyager um the voyager episode in a bit because i think that definitely might, that, that this particular episode certainly falls within the remit of that that area of theological thinking and uh, in terms of other characters, I think we mentioned Vash. Um, my favourite fact about Vash is that they had to change her name in French in, front, in the French um, episodes because Vash means cow in French. <laughs> but um, but she's, she is so sexy. I mean, she's presented as this, like, just independent, wild spirit. 
And she's also a terrible archaeologist. She's not even... <laughs> she is the worst archaeologist. I can relate to her. <laughs> I mean, she's basically a looter, and she does things illegally. She does it for profit. Um, and she randomly wears the kind of the colonial uniform de rigueur, which is the, the car keys and the, sometimes even the pith helmet. Um, but she, she represents every, every kind of stereotype that you have about archaeology before you go into it. And maybe it says a lot about us that we saw all that and went into it anyway. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I think that both Vash, Picard, Cisco, Chakotay, they all represent a little part of every archaeologist's psyche. We've all got that slight urge to go and hunt for treasure and never mind context, I just want to find something cool. And then we've got that deep kind of history perspective of Picard. But also we love to do stuff we love to get involved with reenacting and experiencing things in the way that cisco does so i think i think every archaeologist has a little bit of each of them in and it, it's kind of the spectrum changes depending on what day you are and possibly what you're teaching <laughs> we mustn't forget michael burnham in the new discovery series as well because she's an anthropologist can't we and, um, but well, hey, you haven't watched it, you can't you don't get to comment <laughs> <laughs> um she is an anthropologist but drastically underused and focuses far too much time on being a first officer and a, and a science officer but interesting nonetheless and particularly when she, when it comes to artifacts and Klingon artifacts and, and things like that interesting touch but also dabbles with time machine which is no bad thing when you think about our uh, career in ruins podcast Derek that's very true <laughs> There's also a solid metaphor for a career in academia that you spend too much time doing admin and not enough time doing archaeology. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I've got that comment down, yeah. but I forgot to say it. <laughs> so, I mean, there, obviously there are there are multiple factors that kind of dabble in archaeology or, it, you know, it just crops up in storylines. And of course, there are all the endless, especially in the, in the uh, next generation, the endless episodes where the holodeck crops up and the holodeck malfunctions and... Somehow nobody ever um, thinks that, that this might not be a great idea to use this thing and they end up in some past historical period. Um, I always thought it was quite interesting with the holodeck because they don't really go to the past. They go to whatever their perception of the past is. Mm. Um, <laughs> Normally in a French bar, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, think, I think the worst ones are probably uh, the, well, there's the Robin Hood ones, but that, it's yeah. that Q that makes them do that. Yeah, Q takes fashion Picard off to Robin Hood land, doesn't he? So in so theory, yeah. that could be the actual past. Um. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> that would be extremely disappointing. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it just? <laughs> so given that we've all gone through some of our favourite archaeologists and, and the things that drew us to, to both Star Trek and archaeology, I think it's worth digging in a little bit deeper and looking at some of the episodes that really tie into archaeology and heritage in, in a way that perhaps others don't. Um, who wants to go first? Um, well, I, I mean, I mentioned Cisco earlier, so I think just looking at Deep Space Nine and looking at Benjamin Cisco, um, there's an episode that I think is kind of it's sort of lauded among all experimental archaeologists, which is where he and his son reconstruct and fly uh, an ancient Bajoran ship. And it's just this, it's this beautiful episode and, and the, the scenes of it flying are beautiful. It, it's really touching. So I, I think we could talk about that one, maybe. I'd love to. It's when anyone ever, ever mentioned Star Trek and archaeology to me, my mind always goes to there's one scene in that in that episode where Cisco's building the ship and someone comes in. I think it might be Dax and mentions, why don't you just use a replicator? And he's hammering away with a welder and a hammer. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I must confess to you guys that. DS9 is not my favourite series by in any shape of, of imagination. And I very much skipped through a lot of it. However, hands down, the only episode that sticks in my mind um, is that is this specific episode. We probably should have led with the fact that we have deep rifts between us due to yes, DS9 yeah. um, <laughs> disagreement. So very quickly, just for record and possibly for the podcast, should we do our quick top three Star Trek series? Oh yeah, let's do that. So, top three Star Trek series, Derek. Voyager, TNG, Deep Space Nine. So, w which way around? Deep Space Nine top. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, I, I'm going Discovery, just because. Uh, 
TNG, then Voyager. Chloe? This is difficult. Um, I'm, I'm going to be really weird. The original series, mm-hmm. TNG, DS9, but as an overall series, I'd put TNG at the top because it's just good overall, whereas DS9 only gets good in the last few uh, seasons. Okay. And I love the original series because <laughs> it's just so, like, so of its time. Mm. Back to the episode with, um, with the Bajoran ship. Yeah. Sorry, I think it. I think it was actually. I think it was actually Derek that raised this point to me. But it's this. It's a beautiful illustration of what experimental archaeology can do because you have your expectations, but it's not until you actually go ahead and reconstruct something and test it properly that you really understand it. And I think that's about. That's what what it is about that episode. It's it's probably the most authentic archaeological experience I've seen on Star Trek, and that might be because I do experimental archaeology. So I have a bias in that direction. I um I recently read Thor Hardo Aku Aku, and this is this amazing Nordic explorer that decided to, to he had a theory that the South Americans colonised Easter Island, and he wanted to prove that you could sail from uh, from Chile to Easter Island on one of the traditional boats. And the the book's incredible, and the, he goes through all these different adventures with with his one or two crewmates throughout the, the the adventure the exploration and as i was reading it i was just thinking is this an episode of deep space nine <laughs> <laughs> but again it was it's this experimental he recreated it, this this traditional vessel um to cross the the pacific ocean um following guidance from from indigenous people and went to set out on a journey that to 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 see if it was possible one of the one of the greatest discoveries anyone that has ever dabbled in experimental archaeology will know that there are discoveries you find along the way that you never expect and that's i think why i really relate to that episode because it's they they plan everything they've got maps they've got this meticulous idea in their heads about what they're going to do and what they're going to prove but something unexpected happens and it reacts with the authentic material in a way that forces them to encounter interpretations that they never would have had without that engaging experience of experimental archaeology. So I love it. Uh, there's also elements of influential politi- politics taking place, which I find fascinating. Because again, Thor Hadel, um, I think it's a Contiki expedition, not Aku Aku, but he he has political issues and to the point where he burns his boat in protest because there are different countries trying to prevent him from doing his experiment. I mean, Thor Heyerdahl is an interesting one because I think a lot of people um, are pretty unconvinced by by his kind of conclusions, mm. but the methods, the, the test of the question, can you do this? You know, that that's the thing with experimental archaeology. You're asking, yeah. is this possible? Yeah. And then everything else is interpretation on top of that. Um, but I think that, that then in that episode with, uh, with the Bajoran ship, we know that the Cardassians don't really want the Bajorans no. to, to show that they had this, this wonderful technology because it goes against their kind of um, Cardassian washing of, of history, which is where they're entirely supreme and they've been incredibly beneficial to the Bajoran civilization by, by basically being there and taking them over. So again, it's it's almost this experimental archaeology is presented. I mean, this is what every experimental archaeologist dream, right? We presented yeah. like here we are overthrowing supremacy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, most of the time I just like tinker about with bits of glass. Yeah. It, 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 there is something to be said for that, and I, I just think, I think it's you're wonderful. right. Two of the most powerful scenes to me in that episode are where Goldacap, the leader of the Kardashians, um, initially in the episode he was it's so... It's the Kardashians, kind of... not the Kardashians. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's got to stay in. That's got to stay in. That's got to stay in. <laughs> I want that on a T-shirt. I want that on a T-shirt. Keeping up with the Kardashians. Deep Space Nine, Kim. keeping up with the Kardashians. <laughs> Sorry, let me... Sorry, I'll start that again. <laughs> so... Goldacup, the leader of the Cardassians, is really anxious about this succeeding. And you can see it in his voice and his tone, and it's brilliantly acted. Um, and Because it would utterly undermine this concept of Cardassian supremacy. And the second scene featuring Goldacup is when he re- reluctantly... Uh, congratulates Cisco for his his brilliant voyage, and there's even fireworks. But it's it's completely screwed up his narrative. It's it's ruined this whole. The Cardassians are better, therefore we have every right to colonize and exploit the Bajorans in whatever way we want. So it's such a two massively powerful scenes in amongst some excellent experimental archaeology. 
Just to go on with that briefly as an aside, I think Goldie Cat is one of the most brilliantly realized characters in the whole franchise because he is this dark, deeply flawed being. Um, but, you know, he's, he's not completely unrelatable, which is, I think it goes back to the kind of um, the philosophy of people like Hannah Arendt, who talk about the banality mm. of evil. But, you know, we want to expect the monsters to be recognizably monsters, but Goldacat is capable of being um, polite, is capable of being funny. You know, the, the, the evil person doesn't always present themselves as such and, and has nuances and, I just think that's so, it's so well Just, just to follow actually. up on that, some of the most brilliant bits of Goldacart are where, where they, they, they don't soften his edges, but they almost present a narrative from his perspective that he's acting in the best interests of the Bajorans or he's, he's being benevolent in some way. And it's kind of, it plays out his, his narrative of the, the saviour colonialist in a way. And it's, it's really interesting to see kind of him play for sympathies among Bajorans and quite often with Major Kira, um, quite often to kind of try and get sympathy from that one person who he'll never get it from. Why don't you like it, Lawrence? Oh, they're all just a bit wooden, aren't they? I mean, oh, Star- Star- only Star Trek- in the first few seasons! <laughs> and I admit, and the comes in. It's awful. I mean, they, they, make, they make Discovery acting look, look <laughs> like masterworthy. As soon as the goatee and shaved head comes in, it's brilliant. It's majestic. <laughs> the, the power of the goatee. <laughs> but also, I mean, what's Voyager, really? It's like every episode, oh, we want to get home. Oh, we're going to get home. Oh, no, we can't, because like, if we do, <laughs> someone will be sad. I'm lost in the They're gamma a long way away. <laughs> <laughs> she only lost very few members of her uh, crew. I'll have you know. Only the only the really wooden ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The red, the red shirts. The red shirts only. I will concede that whilst DS Nine is completely forgettable, that one episode um, has st- stuck with me as one of the best archaeological anthropological episodes. But the rest is very much meh. Um, but I'm going to take this opportunity to segue into my favourite archaeological anthropological episode, which is Voyager, uh, season six, episode 12, a blink of an eye. I don't know why I can't say that, but I can't. Um, I love this because there's loads of aspects of technology and science thrown in. Um, and there's loads, and Jacote, being one of the best anthropologists um, out there, uh, really gets stuck in and sees the opportunity. But it's this episode where the where Voyager gets stuck in a stuck in a time eddy um a vortex where they are influencing a planet um and they are stuck in orbit of this planet and their time is moving relative to the rest of the galaxy um yet the planet's time is moving much quicker and that they identify this really quickly with their sensors and whatnot and Jakoti jumps on it as an opportunity to see how this civilization grows and um, one minute represents um, three days or, or something or one second represents three days or three seconds represents three days so they can see the seasons passing they can see how this civilization that they've identified on this planet evolves and advances and they, they, they follow the prime directive they don't influence them or that they, they are influencing them but that's that's something different um but what i love about it as a landscape archaeologist and a, and a surveyor and a remote sensing specialist is that they send out these probes to take rapid photographs and they're, they're taking an image of the planet every 0.6 milliseconds i think um but they're seeing huge time slices and they they see them start on this uh, med in this medieval period or um or what what if you were to be playing um civilization it might be the, the classical era um but um they they start in this and that they just see these time slices chunking all the way through and they identify that they're doing mineral extractions and there's road networks ext- extending and, and in, an industrial revolution takes place um and then they fall into the modern era and the rest of the story goes on but i just love it as this idea of being able to study 
a whole civilization actually be able to understand and it harks back to my love of our time machine question in the podcast where we ask people what they can go what they go back and look at and this is the ultimate answer i think because you just sit there and watch a whole civilization grow and develop and see see where they get to it's a great archaeological fantasy of time travel in a way isn't it that you could you could speed it up and slow it down to to visualize this these long deep history processes and changes in a, in the blink of an eye almost like the um um, a time lapse through time and I guess that's all they're doing with, with the, the photographic archive a, a long term time lapse that's, and, and Jacote even is quoted as saying this could be the greatest anthropological anthrop- this could be the greatest anthropological find of my career yeah. if there's an intelligent species down there we'll be able to track their development not just for days and weeks but for centuries oh, oh it's the dream isn't it the dream isn't it, isn't it funny how they that you know they have this um because that's essentially what we do like I, I do a lot of stuff with long-term change in my own research and so i'm looking at stuff and i'm going right well this is what happens over eight centuries to glass and that's really weird because you, you trying to link that then to people and to individual people is really tricky um and it's valid you know all these different scales of approaches are valid but it's in a way that's the whole that's the whole thing about archaeology absolutely it's giving us a really large-scale way of looking at things which is valuable in its own right we can apply it to ourselves you know people talk about the anthropocene we can apply it to ourselves as much as to the past but it's a very particular scale of analysis it does also tie a little bit into that 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 side of archaeology that where we occasionally drift into the the inevitability of progression so as Chakotay saying if there's an intelligent species there we'll see it develop as as if it, it as if it's a must that human or a species society will develop along a certain lies and it line and it ties ties a little bit into what we we're talking about earlier about this this kind of unilineal progression of of species universally they'll they'll always end up in the same place and I think those those big kind of overarching let's watch a civilization develop narratives kind of ties into that quite almost too much you could argue yeah i mean i've i've written down processualism and and highlighted it and circled it a million times for this episode it does remind me of that theoretical approach to archaeology in the 1950s which is which was sort of worked on by Wiley and Phillips, this methodological, theoretical approach around anthropology and archaeology. Interesting, actually, um, because if you kind of look at the North American system, anthropology, archaeology is a part of anthropology. So anthropology is the study of humans and human societies, um, and archaeology is framed as being part of that. Whereas Mm. within Europe, archaeology tends to sit more with history. And I think it, it, that, difference really informs the different approaches. And I think the type mm. of archaeology we tend to see in Star Trek is more on the, more on the anthropology side, actually. I, 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 I think you're right. It's, it's that, that idea that archaeology is a tool of anthropology rather than a, its own developed discipline in a sense. So it's deployed as a way of doing anthropology rather than um, uh, more aligned with the histories, as you say. But, but before we move on from this episode, there's one other thing I, I, that sort of ties into another series. And uh, it's, this, it, it's linked to this time um, scale again and, and dating. But um, obviously in this specific episode, they got to see time travel or, or time move quickly and they saw evolution. But more recently, I was watching Star Trek Picard on Amazon. And um, without wanting to put too many spoilers in there, one of the characters in there, Soji, um, is desperate to identify how old particular items are. And she gets this amazing device out, just a bit like a phaser, and goes, pew, 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 and it tells her how old everything that she owns is. And it got me thinking on so many levels. First of all, I want one of those um, those things because they are incredible and it would save a lot of problems uh, <laughs> overall. Um and I mean, this thing was accurate to the to the day rather than the sort of carbon dating issues that, that we might see, the calibration is, issues. Um, 
But the other thing it got me thinking about is, um, and, and this episode ties into this as well, how does dating and um, chronology work within different civilizations and across galaxies? Because uh, we all know processual archaeologists loved a map. They loved a, to sync time frame. They loved to just lay it out. But when when you come to quantifying civilizations and uh, uh, we'll touch on this in a bit i think with, with the idea that all human humanoid races come from one particular civilization my spatial hat just starts exploding <laughs> to be able to see the, tra- the the trajectory of humanoids and then the the different civilizations the different whether it, it's it's you come down to artifactual evidence, whether it's ceramics or metalworking, and those artifacts attached to those. And oh, I just, it, I don't know how you'd start. To, I, I can see in my mind's eye how cool it would look <laughs> as a galaxy based map of metalworking of human Galaxy GIS. Yeah, I love it. That's enough about my episode. Derek, what have so you got? I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction. And it's an episode that's not explicitly about archaeology or anthropology directly but it it spoke to me in a way as as more of a metaphor for our subject than anything and it's tng next generation season five episode two darmok um and it's it's an episode all about the meeting of the federation and another civilization in neutral territory uh they've known of each other their their similar powers in terms of their abilities so there's it doesn't have the kind of oft colonial undertones that we see in some of the TNG episodes. Um, They're meeting in neutral territory. And there's a big problem, though, in that they cannot understand each other. And it's one of the very few times where Star Trek drops its its um, plot trope of a universal translator in that the universal translator works. They can understand the words, but the language that um, that the other civilization they're meeting use, um, the Tamerans, is is based entirely on context, entirely on um, metaphor. And it's really interesting to see how this develops through the episode initially both sides laugh at each other they they almost see the other as simple because they can't understand the context of the language they're talking about and the way it's ultimately solved and the plot develops is the captain from the other ship takes Picard to a planet to reenact an experience from their own history so that the the story that they use the the words they use to describe that event has some meaning to Picard. And then as soon as that happens, as soon as there's this encounter with a beast, suddenly Picard understands that the the phraseology, the language, the syntax that they've been using relates entirely to their history and their context and they can start to build an understanding of each other. And it's just a brilliant episode that you know the words, you know what they mean and we can look at the past and we know what a spoon is, we know what a hairbrush is. But the so the words are there, but the context and the, the, the wider backdrop to this is is entirely alien. And that plays out really beautifully in that episode. And it's only when the understanding of context starts to creep in that the communication can start in a more meaningful way. And I think it's 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 such a beautiful episode because it's it's so sensitive to that. And it's so sensitive to you know, they they both ultimately want to understand one another and, and they do everything they can and at the end Picard is so respectful of of his um his counterpart from the alien civilization you know and I think it's 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 just this huge kind of huge statement about as you say Derek lack of understanding needs to be approached in a particular way this this these people are not stupid you just don't speak their language yet mm. And it's beautifully illustrated. They highlight it so neatly at the end where, um, sadly, the the, the alien captain dies on the planet um, and all sorts of firefights break out between the two ships. Picard beams up Riker saying, fire, fire, fire. And Picard just steps onto the bridge and... He, he knows now, he understands, he knows the context, he knows the stories, and he, he, he brilliantly diffuses it by understanding the wider cultural narrative and it's it's just so nice to see that play out in the way they do it to the point where um at one point picard's reciting greek mythology um as a way of uh sharing his own narratives and the the final scene is him reading greek mythology and saying we need to understand our own stories better and it's just so beautifully done 
I don't think I've got anything to add to this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is lovely, though. It's a gorgeous episode. Can I... Um, there's an episode of The Next Generation that doesn't really have anything to do with, with this, and I'm not sure it really has as much to do with this topic. But there's another one where, where Picard um, kind of ends up receiving the consciousness of a person from a planet that died. Um, and it's, it's this kind of, it's this incredibly sad story. So he finds himself living this man's life, the last few years of this man's life, or, or actually a lot of his life. Um, and in the end, the, the planet was doomed and, and it, it didn't survive. And, and this, this memory, this testimony of this man's life was their way of, of trying to, you know, speak to eternity, as it were, and speak to other, other civilizations out there. And he comes back and, he, you know, he's lived an entire life in a few minutes. And he has this little flute that he plays. And it's referenced again in future episodes of The Next Generation. So every so often you, you get this sense of Picard as this man who has actually lived and died somebody else's life on an alien planet that no longer exists. There's no real memory of it other than what they found. Um, and you just catch these glimpses of this absolute sorrow from having lived this whole other life and this whole other experience. And this is this beautiful thing about Picard, which is that he is, he is so interested in, in rigor. He's so interested in, in, in kind of being formal and, and, and taking on the, star, the uh, Starfleet rules. But when it comes to things like protecting Android rights with data or um, trying to understand others, he's, he's this incredibly sensitive um, person. It's, it's brilliantly done. I think we can all agree that Picard is one of the best captains going, if not the best captain going. But can we just take a moment to uh, identify how crap an archaeologist he was? <laughs> I, I, I might just throw out, out there that he wasn't—he wasn't an archaeologist. He might have been an anthropologist, but um, I think he was more of an antiquarian. No, I, I think he's an antiquarian. He's a collector. Um, he, you know, he is given things by Galen. And he's just like, oh, yeah, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, the chase, that, the chase episode, unreal. Just like Professor What's-His-Chops turns <laughs> yeah, up, Galen, yeah. goes, here you go, uh, this is yours now. And he, he doesn't wear any gloves. I know there's like going to be hundreds of um, archivists out there going, what the hell is going on there? And he just goes, oh, yeah, just pick it up. Outrageous behaviour. If you look at things that are going on now with museums, um, you know, and artefacts that were taken under colonial rule, not just the ones that were kind of taken illegally, but even the ones that were taken legally under the laws that were made by the colonizers this is a huge issue and and Picard's just like oh yes thank you very much yeah it's just a a casual twelve thousand years old yeah yeah thanks yeah i'll keep hold of that all i could hear was indiana jones in my ear going that belongs in a museum (laughs) yeah when when you're when you're a worse archaeologist than indiana jones you (laughs) (laughs) good point good point lovely guy but terrible i I just need to make a very brief aside as well it definitely won't make any cuts but the um the episode chloe just chatted through um it was parodied so beautifully in rick and morty in the video game roy where you can go and live a life as roy this carpet salesman and you, you kind of snap out of this video game and suddenly you've lived this whole other life and it's just it's brilliantly done and it's it's well worth watching <laughs> a couple of weeks ago when we sort of firmed up that we were finally going to do this because we have been talking about it for a while i went onto twitter and mentioned it and we've had quite a few really interesting questions from people that have come in as tweets so I thought it might be nice if we go and look at those now and then we try and answer some of them or at least use them as sort of thought experiments to see what that we think good. about that. Yeah, I'm no expert, but I'll do my best. So the first one I'd like to mention is from my colleague, Rob Collins, who asks, what are the roles of holograms and replicators in generating or detracting from an authentic experience of artifacts and materiality? He says he won't even get into holodecks, but I, I think we could touch on holodecks. There, there are questions why does the holodeck always break but we, that's probably not an answer for now and there's also probably, i think there's probably a lot of misuse of that. <laughs> yeah probably not safe for archaeoducts speaking of misuse of holograms as well that voyager episode that i mentioned the doctor has a child not sure how that's possible they just get over it but um <laughs> um huge potential use for um 
for holodecks and well i mean we see them visiting different time periods um to run through some of their play their games and narratives um from the second world war through to medieval periods and or and whatnot but um, what an amazing resource to engage audiences and share civilizations, archaeological relics, artifacts that perhaps aren't accessible. I think I'd, I'd, I'd disagree slightly in that I'd, I always see holodecks as sort of the equivalent of playing a video game in a sense where it's it's often visually quite clear and visually quite authentic, but you never you never get a sense of what the, the, the taste or the smell or the feel or the texture or the mass of these objects are. Does a holographic vase feel the same as a holographic bottle of scotch, for example? Or can you feel the motion of the liquid? Is it is it a replication of reality in terms of all senses? Or is it just a visual treat that tries to trick the mind into thinking you're engaging with that stuff when really it, it it's just photons, it's just light, it's just energy? The number of bar fights they get in in Paris, for example, across every possible series, um, I, I'd suggest it, it's pretty a realistic experience. I've often wondered how realistic it is. Actually, I think I think I remember trying to design something that was like a realistic experience, just like a full body suit, and um, and so it could like prod into you at certain points. So you know, you could be imagining that you're experiencing something, and something would punch you, and you'd feel it. Um, you know, I've got I've gone quite deep into this because. <laughs> I genuinely want to know how this is possible. Um, but I wonder who's behind the holodeck programs. Like who, who's there doing the, the historical <laughs> Definitely, I think the majority of hologram programs should involve 1930s Chicago gangsters oh, for some inexplicable reason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we need to get Stu Eves in on this question, I think. <laughs> but just to go back to, he, I mean, Rob originally didn't ask, he specifically didn't ask about Holodeck's blessing, and we've just taken that and run with it. Um, but he asked about um, holograms and replicators. And mm. um, so one of the big things in archaeology is materiality, which is the way that the material world, the, the things we can touch that make up our world around us, not only are influenced by us, but also influence us themselves. And so the idea behind materiality is that you have this kind of engagement with, with everything around you that you can see and touch, basically. And if you think of a world where holograms are normal or where any food that you want can be replicated, what does that do to your experience of materiality? Oh, oh. <laughs> I guess the, the the closest thing we've got is three D printing. Well, I was, I was going to go. I was going to say that, but it kind of undermines the whole the whole materiality question. And three D printers are crap at materiality. They're great at making things <laughs> yeah. that are that are the right shape, the right size. But you touch it and you think, "Ooh, that's not right. That doesn't feel <laughs> yeah. right." And yeah, similar to the whole holodeck question: is it does it replicate every aspect of material norm, or is it different? Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting research being done by people like Cat Cooper and um, Museums in a Box and things like that, where they are looking to improve 3D printing, for example, so it's not just... Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, imagine having a device that can do that and like legitimately produce something that is authentic. Is it the dream? Does it does it dilute the artifact value itself? I always had the impression it wasn't quite mm. as good. I think mm. this is something that gets kind of. Uh, do you do you remember Red Dwarf, which was actually largely, I think, a bit of a spoof of Star Trek, mm. um, particularly Star Trek: Next Generation. And you know that their version of the replicator was a bit like one of those kind of. <laughs> Soup dispenser, vending yeah. machine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I always had this idea that, yeah, the, re the replicator could make food, but surely, you know, you could imagine the very kind of well to do um, ambassadors going and eating food that was prepared by a genuine chef. And that would be the experience. It takes you back to to Deep Space Nine so wonderfully though with Cisco making his own food and you've got Keiko with a with an arboretum growing plants rather than replicating ingredients so there, there must be a difference by that logic because the very fact that they're going to the effort of growing plants on a space station or cooking food in a pan on a space station when they have access to replicators probably suggests that there is a lack of authenticity, there's a lack of materiality to its feel, its taste, its texture, or even just the idea of it in a way. I've got a perfectly good reconstruction of a, ha a hand axe, but it's not old. 
and I don't I don't get I don't feel that time when I pick it up I don't I don't feel that aspect of its character its personality so maybe food and replicated food is the same it just doesn't have that the spirit of for want of a better term to it I mean I think it's interesting that because things food does taste different when you've made it and there's there's an engagement with it isn't there and I think that's the thing with materiality is that there's there's an engagement between the human and, and, and the world that, that surrounds us, which surely the holodeck could, uh, even when I'm watching it, I have, I don't know about you, but I have this feeling when I'm watching kind of holodeck episodes or when I'm thinking about holograms that it's a weak, watered down version of reality. Mm. And there's, there's an element as well of what the world affords you in that a, a luxury food is a luxury food because of its rarity. And if you can just have it, if it's just there, it loses, it loses an aspect of it. I, if I, if I had to choose a food to eat, I'd probably, on taste alone, maybe I'd go for a bacon sandwich. I wouldn't go for caviar, but it's got that that rarity to it. gives it gives it a character beyond its physical, visceral being. And I, I, again, if you if you expose yourself, if you have unlimited access to everything, does does everything then lose its power? Does it lose its value? There's an important question here as well. As Brits who like making tea. Um, there is a pretty clear process of making tea. You, you put your tea bag in, you add your water, you leave it. Sometimes you might add milk, sometimes you might not, if it's Earl Grey and it's hot, for example. Now, I'm assuming that replicator is pretty good at making tea. Yeah, but then, but as you say, yeah, that's the process, isn't it? Of, of taking, I mean, especially if you decide to brew it in a, in a pot, yeah. Letting the tea brew and waiting for it to brew and pouring it. The performance is a part of it, yeah. You could look at a nice kind of fancy cafe where, um, you know, you, you, you go and you get your tea in a nice pot and, and part of it is waiting for it to brew and you feel like that's part of what you're paying for. You're saying it's a ritual. <laughs> let's, let's, there's a brilliant... There's a brilliant YouTube video that kind of sums this feeling up quite neatly. And it's uh, you've probably both seen it of an American lady who brews tea in the microwave in the most unconventional of fashions. Now, it may be that that tea tastes identical, but what a horrific process of manufacture. <laughs> I've been trying to work out whether that video was a deliberate trial. Oh, question. <laughs> But I think, it, no, but it's true, you know, and you talk about handling your hand axe. Um, there is something about knowing, there is something about knowing when you're excavating and you find an artifact in the ground, there's something about knowing that the last person who touched it lived maybe 800 years ago, maybe 2,000, 3,000 years ago, that makes it feel like this very profound moment. And yet you could replicate me something like that. You could make it. Um, and break it and show me a piece of it. And I would love it. I would enjoy the materiality of it. I would love the historical context of it, but I wouldn't have that same sense of thrill. And I almost kind of intellectually think that's a bit silly, but kind of emotionally it's there. Um, yeah. Sense of, you know, that's what this, this thing is meaningful. This thing has traveled between two people in time in a way that, I can't access because there are no time machines yet. We've got one. Unless, of course, you listen to Career and Ruin. <laughs> <laughs> time machines are very real. Only one return ticket. <laughs> What's the next question? So Killian Mallon asks, um, would excavation, which is, as we all know, by its very definition, destructive, be ethical when you could just scan a site to know the position of every molecule um, and maybe then you could carry out the excavation on a holodeck without actually destroying anything. Oh, well, that's a dream. Surely. I think it is the dream. Yeah. Is that possible with Star Trek technology? Yeah. I, th I think yeah, if, we, if, if we assume <laughs> that the, the holodeck can replicate the utter physical being of everything, then from a from an excavation and knowledge gathering perspective, then yeah, you could replicate it. But if we go back to the materiality of the past again, is it real? Is it? I don't know. It's, it's difficult. It's really difficult because we both, both we all of us, we use remote sensing. We use lots of different techniques to try and understand the past without breaking the surface and destroying it. But the destructive element does give us that final little bit of detail and understanding. Can you replicate that with Star Trek technology? I'm not sure. I wonder as well about um, what actually you could do. So, 
I mean, when we do excavate, this is, this is perhaps probably, we, we're probably not honest about this enough as archaeologists that we're always making decisions which, you know, a lot of archaeologists rescue archaeologists. So there's building development going on and the archaeologists have to come in because that is going to be destroyed. And so, um, for example, in the UK, the developers will then fund that research. Um, but there, it's time limited. So you have to make choices about what you record and what's significant. Mm -hmm. And I don't imagine that even in this wonderful utopic Star Trek universe where the technology is brilliant, that, you know, we have infinite um, person power resources, for example. So they're still having to choose what they prioritise and what they focus mm. on. I, I'm, I'm holding out for 2049. So if you remember the recent Blade Runner movie, um, they uh, scanned a tree and then they went down into the uh, ground and they identified that there was a box buried in underneath this tree with human remains in which led them to excavate the box and find out what's in it so we can't be too far off that sort of technology i'm figuring based on popular culture and movies but that that is an interesting point and probably ties into this discussion because they're identifying amazing things and then going oh i'm not going to leave that in the ground am i, I there's a there's a fundamental <laughs> Uh, and I hate to say a fundamental epistemological point here, which I'm going to cut out because I hate saying that word out loud. But I'm, I'm but, going to keep that in, Derek. I mean, there's, there's a again? fundamental epistemological point here that one of the biggest, greatest strengths of archaeology is as we engage with the past, as we excavate, we ask questions, even if it's micro questions along the way, which bit of soil is above which, which bit has the stickiest, clayiest texture, where does that context end and this other context begin? What archaeology, particularly in Northwest Europe, isn't is just gathering data in the hope that it tells us something. And I think just because we can record everything in detail doesn't mean it's going to answer any questions about the past. So the power of archaeology is that decision-making process that's necessitated, I think, in part by it being destructive. Without that, you are just gathering data that will never tell you its own story because how could it possibly? Data is is data. It's it's mute. It's It needs an archaeologist to ask a question, even if that question is really spur of a moment in the head of the archaeologist in the field, moving a tiny bit of soil. That question is valid and real and it helps us get to an answer. Without that question, we're nothing. I think that's, that is beautiful. Like, it's just, it's so good. Um, I wonder, though, in terms of how we ask questions and what we prioritise, would it be interesting uh, to use, say, a holodeck um, and use this kind of remote scanning technology to excavate the same site with multiple different methods? Oh, that would so be So we could go, right, let's do the kind of wheeler box grid method of the 1950s, Kathleen hmm. and... Kenyan slash uh, Mortimer Wheeler method where we excavate in two by, by two meter boxes. Um, let's go to an open plan excavation. Let's try some keyhole stuff. Let's look at all these different approaches and see how our interpretation of the site differs between them. I think that's nice. I think that would be really cool. And another another massive advantage of this brilliant technology is you could see what's coming, so you could put your sections in exactly the right place to get the perfect cross-section. <laughs> There's none of this guesswork anymore. Yeah, it's, we know nice. what's coming, so we'll dig here. And we can still do that dig process. Well, we yeah. can still do it, but we, we just do it better. That's a really good point. The combination of the two is a really strong... Um, approach as well so in, particularly if you're thinking about rescue archaeology so if you've got a site that's falling into the sea and you need to get the best possible outcome of those excavations then yeah having scanned it and recorded it previously that then you know exactly where you're going to put your excavation trenches and get all the right right stuff while saving time and money um yeah i like that i think this has been an amazing discussion and it's one that could probably go on for weeks i know i have so many things I could cover. But I'd like to wrap it up just by asking one final question for all of us to, to look at, which is, we all love Star Trek and we've talked about archaeology and Star Trek, but I think it's typical that people who do love Star Trek are also fans of other science fiction out there. And I was wondering what either of you have sort of thought about the way that archaeology comes across in other science fiction franchises, or novels or any kind of science fiction universes that you that you know and I feel love. like we're going to go to the same place here Lawrence and I um, purely because there's, there's there's one place my mind always goes when we think about archaeology and sci-fi and it's Stargate SG-1 it is it's 
sci-fi in our time and i've always loved that but it's got it's it's so heavily rooted in archaeology it's it's it permeates through the series but it's it's people in our day who can do sci-fi adventures what could be better than that yeah yeah there's i mean again it does hark back to a sunday afternoon waiting for time team and watching stargate sg1 to start but at 100 percent so many series we could even go into the atlantis ones if we want but um they go they'll go visit different um I mean, they don't have a prime directive, which is interesting in its own right, because you get prehistoric people versus um, sort of uh, industrial age civilizations to the Egyptians and everything in between and um, amazingly advanced um, alien civilizations as well. But yeah, it's brilliant. And archaeology and anthropology is just just woven through it beautifully. What's quite nice about it as well, for once in sci-fi, it's not anglophone humans who are the global or universal colonizers it's another species it's another race so in a way we're it's 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 human beings fearing subjugation in a sense and it's quite interesting to have that dynamic of the superpower isn't a human federation it's 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 the gaud it's the it's it's the pharaohs ultimately um but it's this this universal superpower that has the technology has the advantage and it's played out from that okay it's quite an american militaristic dynamic but it's it's really interesting to see it play out what about you chloe probably my favorite ever science fiction TV series isn't Star Trek. Uh, I know this is sacrilegious, <laughs> but I absolutely adore Battlestar Galactica, the remake uh, that decade ago. Uh, um, and that is, and it's just this incredible story of people who build robots to be their servants. The robots rise up against them. They destroy them. There's a small band of humans left. Some of the robots are able to look like the humans, so they don't know who's a robot. It's this kind of very edgy, terrifying thing. There's a lot, there's a lot of kind of politics um, and kind of a lot of thought experience about what would we do if we were just a small band of people, you know, numbering in the tens of thousands, uh, surviving for our life, which I think goes back to kind of our conceptions of like the Mesolithic, for example. But also throughout the series, it becomes less and less clear who are the enemy. And who are the good, the good guys, as it were. And I love that about it. I love that subtlety. But there's also this kind of whole history about things that were foretold. And I found that interesting because that's where the archaeology comes in. So in one episode, they find uh, essentially a temple which is on a planet that's about to be destroyed by a supernova. And so you have this kind of, I think, a really recurrent theme in the popular um, culture narrative of archaeology and ancient history, which is that these ancient people kind of knew something that we didn't. They're therefore telling something, you know, you look at the, the way that people treat the Mayans, for example, you know, they, they predicted what was going to happen. They had wisdom we lack. So there's an idea that the, the more technologically advanced we are, the, the less wise we become. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting one, because I think that comes, that stems from the way a kind of quite a, simplistic interpretation of, for example, um, First Nations people in North America. There's an episode where they are there trying to seek out, trying to understand this temple before the whole planet goes supernova, before the star goes supernova and the whole planet is destroyed. And they are, they talk about archaeologists. And um, on a lesser note, recently I've been watching um, She-Ra and the Princesses of <laughs> which is a reboot of the 80s cartoon She-Ra. And again, you know, there, there are a pair of dads in that who are um, historians and archaeologists and they run a library and they discover this deep truth about the planet. And it's just this idea that the archaeologists and historians have these kind of keys to deep, meaningful truths about humanity, which is really seductive. I don't believe it's true at all, but I love the idea of it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, very nice. For me, just an incredible conversation and one that I've been wanting to have for a really long time. So I have to thank you, Derek and Lawrence, for coming along and being a part of this. I don't think the conversation should be over. I think we've covered just a tiny scratch of the surface of all the things that we could have looked at. So I hope that aside from putting this out on my YouTube channel, aside from hopefully a podcast via Career in Ruins, which I think will cover more detail than we do in the YouTube video, um, and ongoing Twitter conversations. I'd be really keen to know if 
people have suggestions for other topics we could discuss in the future um, because quite frankly mixing archaeology and science fiction is one of the most we've had an absolute blast yeah <laughs> and we might even do a stargate episode Thank you.